Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzen, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to turn in your copies of the Scripture this morning to the book of Galatians chapter 2. In a moment, we will be reading verses 11 through 14. If you're using the Pew Bible there in front of you, you can find the text on page 973 this morning. How thankful I am for God's Word. I wouldn't have anything to say this morning if it wasn't for His Word. This would be really short. Are you thankful for God's Word? thankful that he's given you this great gift. Are you hungry for it? Desire it? Let me give you a secret into my life this morning. This is how I delight in Jesus Christ. It's through his word. Do you delight in Jesus Christ? How do you do that? Do you get into his word? You find your delight there. It's the source of your delight. That I find my satisfaction and my joy from this word which always points me to Jesus Christ. Always gets me to where I need to be. Always is faithful and reliable, and sufficient, and trustworthy. So would you stand with me this morning as I read from God's Word, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Once I finish verse 14, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God, because we're truly thankful. If you're not thankful, don't say it. But if you are thankful for God's Word, then let me encourage you to say it like you mean it, all right? Let's read. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, please give me physical strength and spiritual energy to preach your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The church is full of hypocrites. Have you ever heard that accusation? You, has that accusation ever been leveled against you? And, and how do we respond when we hear those words? Nuh-uh. No, we're not. Do we dig in our heels when we hear that? Do we insist that we're not? And what do people mean when they say that the church is full of hypocrites? Sometimes when people say that word, hypocrisy, they are saying that people in the church hold a holier-than-thou attitude. People can declare that statement because they feel judged by people in the church. Or those in the church, Lord over others, who they are, what they have done or what they haven't done, over people's head, and there's a certain sense of superiority. The other meaning behind that statement is the accusation that people don't live consistent lives. That Christians would say one thing but do something else. That preachers would preach one thing and live a different way. That the way that we live our lives is inconsistent with what we say that we believe, inconsistent with what we teach. And that for all of our high and mighty talk, our lives are still a mess. And so, how would we respond? The church is full of hypocrites. I do not believe the best way to answer that question is to try to fight against it, but to humbly admit hypocrisy can be our problem. Let's be honest. We've seen it in the church. We know about it, whether it's in our midst as a local congregation, whether it's in some other church, we know about it. But I believe that we also must ask the question, is it any better out there in the world? That people out there 
can take a holier-than-thou position, that people out there can believe one thing and teach one thing, but their lives are inconsistent, that for all of their high and mighty talk out there in the world, their lives are still a mess. And here's a difference. As Christians, we might struggle with hypocrisy, but we do not desire to stay in hypocrisy. We cannot, we must not, we are determined to forsake it. And we have the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us to be able to forsake it. We as Christians know that we are being renewed day by day, that we are being changed from one degree of glory to another as the Holy Spirit uses His Word to pierce our hearts and to bring radical transformation. That our lives echo what the great hymn writer John Newton once expressed when he said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is our heart's desire. That is our prayer. And let's just be honest this morning and say that hypocrisy is not just a Christian problem, it's a human problem. It's a problem for all mankind. We would love to live in a Facebook world where everyone only sees what we want them to see, where everyone only knows what we tell them about ourselves. But that is not real life. And that's certainly not the Christian life. Let's not kid ourselves and think that the Bible doesn't address this. Maybe a poignant demonstration is found in the book of Exodus. The Israelites are there, encamped at the bottom of Mount Sinai. God had just brought them out of Egypt God has just been giving Moses the ten words, the ten commandments from the Lord. And then Moses comes to the people in Exodus 24, 3, and he says this. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And a few verses later in verse 7, it says, then Moses took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Liars. They talked a good talk. It sounded great. We promise we will do everything the Lord says. We will be obedient. But what? Turn over a few pages in your Bible after Exodus 24 and what do you come to? Exodus 32. And they fashion a golden calf. They start worshiping this golden calf. They couldn't even make it out of the book of Exodus. They couldn't even leave Mount Sinai before they failed. All of their promise, all of their devotion, all of their obedience, all of their commitment, how how quickly it was gone. It quickly left them. Talk about fickle hearts. But oh, how mankind's heart is fickle. How does this not resonate with us Christians, but with all people? You can talk, you can say things, but there comes a day when the rubber meets the road. Who are you? Who are you really? Who are you when no one is around? Who are you in your heart and soul? Those are dangerous questions. 
And if we ask those questions too much, it can cause us to simply gaze at our own navel feigning holiness. But those questions are meant to push you out to say that there's something that is missing. I have a hypocrisy problem because I have a sin problem. And that's why we need the authority of the gospel over us. It's the reason everyone needs the authority of the gospel over them in order to keep us from hypocrisy. And why does hypocrisy creep in? Why does it rear its ugly head among us? Because we lose sight of the gospel. Because we forget the gospel. Because we proclaim that we are an authority unto ourselves. We want to call the shots. We want to be the authority instead of coming under and submitting to the authority of the gospel. And no one, not no one, no Christian, no pastor, no apostle is above the authority of the gospel. We must be under it and we need to be under it. There is no such thing as an autonomous Christian. Do you see your need to be under the authority of the gospel? Do you see, feel the danger of hypocrisy in your own heart? You will never see your need until you understand you are a sinner. That is the place where we begin I need the authority of the gospel in my life because I am a sinner before God. I need it to inform me. I need it to correct me. I need it to change me through the power of God's word and through the Holy Spirit. And the world needs to see the authority of the gospel in our lives. The world needs to see lives that have humbly come under the, it, uh, humbly have come under the authority of God's word. That we are those who have confessed, I am no longer my own. I am no longer pretending to be autonomous. I am not even under my own authority. And that would speak a loud word to this world. A world that is contrary to us. The way that we live our lives. And that's a word that they desperately, desperately need to hear. That's why we're looking at four reasons why we need the authority of the gospel in our lives. In your bulletin, there's an outline if that is helpful to you this morning. Four things. Last week we looked at these first two, so we will go through them quickly again just for sake of reminder. Four reasons why we need the authority of the gospel in our lives that comes from this text. First, we've seen we need the authority of the gospel because in our hypocrisy we will doubt our convictions. Paul in our text is confronting Peter for his sin. It says Paul opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned because of his hypocritical actions. What was so bad? What was it that Peter had done that he needed to be confronted? Peter had traveled from Jerusalem. He had come to the church in Antioch. Antioch was a church that was predominantly Gentile in a Gentile region. It was the church where those who followed Christ were first called Christians. The church that sent Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles and to establish churches throughout the Mediterranean. Peter had come to this church, a church that was a beacon of light and hope for all that God was doing in the world. 
Peter came to this church and being a Jew, he freely ate with the Gentiles. Peter did this because he had had a vision from the Lord. Peter in this vision had seen a sheet descending from heaven. And in this sheet were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. And the Lord Jesus Christ said to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter, being a good Jewish man, having kept the Jewish law, had said, no, 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 I cannot do that. I cannot break the Old Testament law. I cannot eat the things that are here in this sheet. Because there were unclean and common things. And then Jesus says to Peter, Peter, with God has cleansed, do not call common, do not call unclean. That happened to him three times, telling Peter that this was a certain and sure thing. And so Peter, in his obedience to that vision, now we see him eating with Gentiles, associating with Gentiles. Having such close proximity to them was not something that you would have in the Jewish life. You certainly wouldn't eat what they were eating, but it appears that Peter wasn't just in their presence, but he was also eating what they were eating. But then, these men from James come. James was the, the brother of Jesus. He was leader in the church in Jerusalem. These men from James come. And Peter begins to withdraw from the Gentiles. He begins to withdraw from eating with them. He begins to separate himself from them. And it says that he feared the circumcision party. I believe this refers to unbelieving Jews who would persecute other Jews, whether they were believing or unbelieving Jews, who did not follow the Old Testament law. So Peter acted hypocritically by changing his actions based on fearing this group of people and the very possibility of fearing the persecution that would come upon him or the persecution that would come upon other Jewish Christians for his actions. He doubted the conviction that he had received from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He did not follow through on obeying the Lord. He changed course and instead disobeyed because he feared man. His fear of man showed itself to be greater than his fear of God. Man, what man thought of him, what man would do, became a greater concern and a greater director of his life than who God was and what God would want and what God would do. Christian, beware of hypocrisy that comes from doubting the conviction that comes from God and God's word. Beware of the hypocrisy that arises because we fear man more than we fear God. Let God have his awesome, rightful place in your life and let him lead you to what is right. The second thing that we saw, we need the authority of the gospel because in our hypocrisy, we will damage others. Peter's hypocrisy was not self-contained. His life influenced others. His hypocrisy led all the Jews and even Barnabas to act hypocritically. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, acted in such a way to bring discouragement to the church. The very people that he had gone with Paul to preach the gospel to, the Gentiles, now he began to withdraw from them as well. Peter and his actions influenced others. And they influenced them in the wrong way, towards hypocrisy. Our hypocrisy and our sin has a damaging effect on others in the church. We cannot pretend to be silos in the church, 
that we can do whatever we want, that we can say whatever we want, that we can think whatever we want, and that that won't influence and affect and hurt or damage other people's hearts and lives. God has called us to be disciplers, not damagers. He's called us to lead out in holiness, not hypocrisy. He has called us to truth, to build the church up, not to be selfish and tear the church down. And so now we come to number three this morning. We need the authority of the gospel because in our hypocrisy, we will deviate from the truth of the gospel. We need the authority of the gospel because in our hypocrisy, we will deviate from the truth of the gospel. Our world will accuse us of being out of step. The accusations have come and will come that we are out of touch, that we are too archaic, that we are too old-fashioned, that we have not been enlightened enough, that we have not been educated enough, that we are stuck in the backwater ways of a bygone age. We will be told that we, will, that we need to get on board with the agendas of today, that we need to progress and see what really matters and what's really important, and that we need to jettison the belief that we have in the Bible for a belief and action and an agenda that really matters, that will really make a difference in this world. We are told, get in step with the world, fall in line with the world. And some have been taken captive by this because they fear of, they fear of being painted as out of touch, irrelevant, When we hear those calls from the world, get in line, Christian. Get in line with what we're doing. Get in line with what we're promoting. There has to be a problem that comes in our hearts, in our souls, because we know that the truth of the gospel is radically opposed to the assumptions of the world. James 4 4 says this Do you not know that friendship with God is, or do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Dear Christian, we cannot and must not be in step with the world. What is it that our lives line up with? Is it with the gospel and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Paul came into the church at Antioch and he witnessed something. Something was evident there in the church. There was a problem, not a little problem, a big problem. And it meant that a big correction needed to take place. And notice the singularity here in verse 14 of Paul's statement. I saw. Paul appears to be all alone. Paul had nobody else to draw to his side he had no team, he had no band of brothers, no other leadership in the church was, is even mentioned. It appears to be Paul against Peter, against the Jews in the church, and against Barnabas. We get the picture that the task of correction was his and his alone. Even his closest companion in ministry at this time, Barnabin, Barnabas, had been led astray, deceived. Now Paul was to stand alone in the truth Although everyone else had fallen by the wayside. And what was the problem? It was their conduct. 
Peter was condemned because of his inconsistency. If you go back in Galatians chapter 2, a few verses to verse 5, you see that Paul's desire is to preserve the truth of the gospel. He stood up to false teachers. He did not give in to them so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved. But now there are people in the church, in Antioch, people that he had fought for so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved. Now their lives are trampling upon that truth. It says that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That is, their lives did not line up with the gospel. Here is where your life is to be lived, dear Christian. It's to be in step, in line. Your life should match the gospel message that is proclaimed. What Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Is your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does your life, the way that you live, the choices that you make reflect the gospel? Does it reflect that you believe there is a holy God who created all things and who judges all things and who rules all things, who controls all things and owns all things? Does your life reflect that you believe that you are a sinner, that you realize that your sin once separated you from God but that there is still sin that even clings closely to you? Does it reflect that you no longer want to hold on to that sin, but that you desire to forsake it and to kill it in your life? Does it reflect that you've been given a great gift, you've been given the gift of repentance, that you've been given the gift of grace in your life? Does it reflect that you have a soft heart, that he has so opened your eyes, that he has made you see your deplorable condition, and he has brought you out of darkness that he has brought you out of death into his marvelous light and into eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Does it reflect that you stand before the cross as one who was condemned and guilty, but by the blood of this king who died in your place, bearing your sin, bearing your shame, you have been cleansed of your sin and forgiven? Does it reflect that you've now been united to Jesus Christ, that your identity is now in him? that you are one who is his and you, that you follow Jesus Christ, that you daily deny yourself, that you take up your cross and that you follow Jesus Christ with everything that you are? Does your life reflect that you are dependent upon Jesus Christ as the mediator in order to make you right with God? Does your life reflect that your hope is in Jesus Christ and that because you hope in him, you have a new home and eternity that's spent with him forever in his glory. Is your life in step with the gospel? Is your manner of life worthy of the gospel? Hypocrisy blinds us so that we are unable to see our life and our conduct is actually a denial of the gospel that saved us. That's why Paul had to confront Peter. Because Peter's actions were public. And so Paul had to confront Peter publicly because the truth of the gospel was at stake, was on the line, was on the line by the way that they lived their lives. It was what they did or didn't do that showed whether or not that their lives were in line with the gospel. It didn't matter. 
It didn't matter if they claimed orthodox doctrine. They could, they could not use this as an excuse and say, well, we believe all the right things. We have got our doctrine together, so we're good. Our theology is airtight, no problem with us. Paul, you have bigger fish to fry. There are worse people out there. Spend your time confronting them. Don't worry about us. Look, we're okay. We've dotted every I. We've crossed every T when it comes to orthodox doctrine. But Paul saw all through that to say, it doesn't matter what you claim to believe, what you claim to think you know, how superb or superior your right doctrine is if you don't have right living. You say you believe in the truth of the gospel, doesn't matter how much you say it if you don't live it, if you are unwilling to change your life, if you resist and do not let it change you. God means for the gospel not merely to be the content of the speech that comes out of your mouth, but he means the gospel to be the contour of your life. To get out of step with the gospel is to stand condemned. Dear Christian, be warned, you can be out of step with the truth of the gospel. Peter was. Barnabas was. Don't be so naive to think that you are not prone to hypocrisy like these saints were. And let us be clear. A true Christian cannot perpetually live out of step with the gospel. No true Christian will, will remain in that state where they are out of step with the gospel. You might be out of step for a time. You might have out, be out of step for a season, but not forever if you are a child of God. And if you have never been in step with the gospel, you cannot claim Christ. But if you would say that, if you would say, I've never been in step with the gospel, I would urge you, plead with you this morning and say to you, that you can be brought into step with the gospel. Don't stay there. Come to Christ. Believe in him and trust in him to save you as the substitute who paid the ultimate price for sin by dying on the cross. Repent and turn away from your sin and guilt to find forgiveness that he alone can give. Trust that he is the only way to God and give your life to him. And for you, dear Christian. It's a verse like this that tells us why we need to come back to the gospel time and time and time again. It says that we cannot just put the gospel on the shelf. The gospel is not just what brings us into God's family. It's also what sustains us. It's also what sanctifies us. It's also what keeps us close to our Savior, to the cross and to the very throne of God. And how I pray that you would never be bored of the gospel. And if you are bored of the gospel and you are a Christian, there is only one thing you can do. Get on your knees and pray. Pray for greater gospel understanding, greater gospel desire, greater gospel influence in your life, and then open up the book and read. Dear Christians, we cannot, we must not get bored with the gospel because if we get bored with the gospel, something is wrong in our hearts. 
We need it because we're prone to get out of step. We need to go back to it again and again. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Here's what one commentator says about this. Christian living, therefore, is a continual realignment process, one of bringing everything in line with the truth of the gospel. Do you need a realignment this morning? Is this continual realignment process a part of the way that you live? It begins with a proper heart posture of humility. And it cannot and never is divorced from bringing God's word into your heart and into your mind. And when you do this, you begin to taste and see that the Lord is good and that his gospel is good. And that not only will you want to be in step with the truth of the gospel, it will be your greatest desire. Number four this morning. We need the authority of the gospel because in our hypocrisy we will deny Christ. We need the authority of the gospel because in our hypocrisy, we will deny Christ. We finally get to the actual confrontation. Public confrontation. Peter's actions had been done in public. He was also an apostle, a leader of the church, so he is corrected in public. It's meant to correct Peter, but the whole church needs to hear this correction because others have been affected by Peter's sin as well. And so Paul then, here in verse 14, asks this question. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, what is Paul saying so far? Peter was born ethnically a Jew. He was of Jewish descent, but he was living like a Gentile. That is, he was eating with the Gentiles. He was eating the food that they were eating. He was acting like a Gentile, communing with them being in their presence. And it's in this that he was living like a Gentile and not like a Jew because he wasn't holding on to that Mosaic law anymore. He was not keeping the strict dietary laws of the Old Testament. And let us remember, it was good for Peter to be living this way. It was good for him to be among the Gentiles, to be eating with them, to be fellowshipping with them, to be communing with them. It was no sin because Jesus himself had told Peter to do it. So far, no problem in the question until we get to the next part. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? When Peter acted hypocritically, he pulled back from eating with the Gentiles. He separated himself. And he made a gesture towards them. What was the gesture? Peter was saying to those Gentiles, you need to move towards me, a Jew. Not me moving towards you as a Gentile. Peter was saying that they needed to receive the Jewish law if they really wanted to be a good Christian. If they really wanted to be saved. If they really wanted to be a part of the church. If they really wanted to have fellowship together and fellowship with God, then they would have to obey the Old Testament law. Peter was forcing the yoke of the law that came through Moses onto these Gentiles. And Peter's new behavior evidently was inconsistent with his true principles. 
he was now trying to give the appearance of being a strictly observant Jew and by so doing was putting the pressure on the Gentile believers to submit to circumcision and in so doing the whole Old Testament law. Peter had known the freedom that came with Christ, but his actions were having an enslaving effect on the Gentiles. He wasn't praising the freedom that they had in Christ. He was promoting slavery. He wasn't promoting the unity that came to Jews and Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ. Rather, he was imposing a law upon them for their salvation, a law that Peter wasn't even keeping anymore. But think about the message that Peter is sending to these Gentile brothers and sisters. By pulling away from them, by separating from them, he is in essence saying this. That they had not truly been cleansed from sin in Christ. He is saying that they still had a stain upon them. They still were morally morally reprehensible and must be avoided. He was saying that the only thing that could remove the stain in their lives was taking the Jewish law upon themselves. It is in this that we see even Peter deny Jesus Christ. He is saying Jesus' death and resurrection is not enough to cleanse you from your sin. Jesus' death and resurrection is not enough to remove your guilt. Jesus' death and sin or Jesus' death and resurrection isn't enough to change you. Jesus' death isn't enough to make you righteous in the eyes of God. That is what Peter is saying. Peter's actions, though, were not in line with the gospel, but they were actually anti-gospel and anti-Christ because he brought into question the very work of redemption that Christ was sent into this world to accomplish. What is the gospel? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing, nothing else can cleanse me. Nothing else can make me clean. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter had denied the power of that blood. By saying Jesus' blood couldn't even cleanse these filthy Gentiles from their sin, that they needed more. That is not the gospel of Jesus, and praise God that that is not the gospel. Peter was acting like these Gentiles were still dead in their sin. When they had been saved from their sin, when they had been made alive in Jesus Christ, when they had been freed from the dominion and power of sin and death, just how anti-gospel and anti-Christ is this? Peter's actions maligned the whole premise of Christianity. Peter was saying, Peter was saying, Christianity is about forcing someone to change their behavior. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Let me say that again, because I think we miss that in in our lives. Christianity is not about forcing someone to change their behavior. What is Christianity? Christianity is the work of God that saves us and changes us and reorients our life. 
It's something that Christ does in us. It's a work that he does in our hearts and in our lives. Peter was not only denying Christ, he was denying what Christ works, makes possible, and that is a life that is completely transformed by God. You might be sitting there this morning, a wave of relief might come over you. Whew, at least, at least I don't force anybody to become a Christian. And yes, we might not force people to become Christians, but are we attracting them to become Christians? Such attraction shines through in the work that God has done and is doing in your life. Is it a life that is completely reoriented? Is it a life where the love of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ become the motivating factor so that you live by faith in him? This this is the same Peter who had denied his Lord for fear of a servant girl. He now denied him again for fear of the circumcision party. He still believed in the gospel, but he failed to practice it. And if there's any consolation this morning, maybe there's consolation in Peter's imperfection. And his wrestling with sin still gives us hope. That Peter could again deny the Lord so publicly through his actions gives us hope in our fight against the persistent sin in our lives. Peter's sin is recorded for all time. Readers down throughout the ages have read about Peter's failure. Thanks be to God that our sins and our failures haven't been written down. But thanks be that God was getting Peter and is getting us where we need to be. That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Why is Paul relaying all of this to the Galatian church? Why is Paul telling the Galatian church about Peter's problems, Peter's hypocrisy? Because Peter and the church in Galatia were sinning in the same way. They had the same problem. They had the same problem with the authority of the gospel. And it speaks a word to them by example and says, Peter's problem is your problem and how I feel it. How I feel that Peter's problem is my problem and Peter's problem is our problem. And then why we desperately need the authority of the gospel in our lives so that we don't play the hypocrite. And so then let us fall before the majesty of God and come to him in repentance with hearts that desire to magnify the word of God in the way that we live our lives under the authority of the gospel because the word of God can never be magnified enough. Does your word, does your life magnify the word of God as you live under the authority of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. I pray that we would have heard your word today. 
a word that we do not want to deviate from the truth of the gospel. We do not want to be out of step with the gospel. We want to be in step with the gospel. We want our lives to be lived in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to live that way. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is a Christian, but their life is not in step with the truth of the gospel, may they, by the power of your Spirit, be able to find realignment today. Say, here, here is where I need to stand. The contour of my life is not gospel-shaped. It's me-shaped, selfish. Father, shape all of our lives to that of the gospel. And there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you, who has not put their faith and trust in you, that they would see and say, well, the church isn't perfect, but there's a world out there that's no better but that the church is a place where transformation is happening. The church is a place where God is working. The church is a place of humility, a place of sacrifice, a place of love. And while we are not perfect, we seek to encourage one another, spur one another on to love our Savior more and to love one another more. And Father, we pray that you would bring salvation today to someone's heart here. That they would repent, turn from their sin, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Confess him as Lord and be saved. Father, I pray that we would never lose sight of the glorious gospel of grace. And that we would be thankful to hear this morning that no one forced us to be a Christian. No one forced us to call upon the name of the Lord. No one forced us to change our behavior. That it was a work that you've done in us to draw us and bring us to yourself. So we thank you for that grace and mercy that you've shown to us, Father, and that we would proclaim that gospel to those around us as we seek to live transformed lives and seek to see other lives transformed in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.